the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to The Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotographs contributor Chad Young. And today we'll be discussing surprising batted ball distance, leaders and laggers, and some Adenu strategy. And uh, we'll begin things off with the most interesting player alive today, and that's Hyun Jin Ryu, whose name I love saying. Actually, the Dodgers have a lot of guys who's Names are pretty awesome, of course. Like every episode, we have to speak about Yasiel Puig because an episode is not complete without saying the word Puig. And Chad, I would love to hear you pronounce his name, actually. Give you a chance. You know, interestingly, until you said it right now, I wasn't really sure the right way to say it. I, I've been saying it Puig, but Puig sounds like it's probably right. You know, it's funny. Yeah, well, I assume it's just because when I've been watching games on extra innings, that's how they pronounce it. But the first time I saw his name, I thought it was Puig, Yasiel Puig. And that sounds really ugly. Yeah. I can't imagine Puig a baseball much player. much more pleasant for sure. Yeah, I can't imagine a baseball player being good with the last name Puig. So I'm kind of glad it's Puig. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about some Ryu here. Uh, is this a guy that should continue to be a strong mixed league player? I mean... All season, he's only allowed more than three runs twice, four runs and five runs, uh, all the way back in April and May. So he's been consistently really good all season long. Of course, he's got a sub-three ERA at the moment. You think he can keep it up? So I don't think he can keep up a sub-three ERA, but you don't have to keep up a sub-three ERA to be a pretty useful fantasy player. Um, I think if you look at his... Um, his peripherals look like his FIP right now. It's it's three point four eight, um, and that's probably much more in line with what he's he's likely to do the rest of the way. Um, you know, the the projection systems think he's going to regress even more than that, uh, but I, I don't I don't see it. I don't see anything. You know, he's got a slightly high uh, left on base percentage, and his home run per nine I think is lower than the projection systems thought it would be. And when you look at it from that perspective, I, I don't really see anything in here that says to me, you know, this guy's going to fall apart, that the second half's going to be a disaster. I think he's going to regress, but only because 2.83 just isn't sustainable. Yeah, I actually have a couple of concerns with Ryu. Uh, one being that his swinging strike rate is a lot lower than you would expect, given his actual strikeout rate. It's only 7.9%, which is well below the league average. So it surprises me that he's actually sustained, uh, you know, a, a slightly above average strikeout rate. I don't know how much longer that can continue if he's failing to actually induce swings and misses. And uh, yeah. I, I actually have uh, his baseball reference page up, and he's basically doing it with a ton of looking strikes. And now that is somewhat repeatable. It's just not to the degree of swinging strikes. So just like Clay Buckholz, who's also been doing it with looking strikes, I would feel more comfortable if he was inducing swinging strikes as opposed to looking strikes. Yeah, and I mean, the thing with a guy like Ryu is that he, he hasn't seen anyone, right? No, this is, he's now gone through probably a, a handful of teams more than once. But for the most part, these guys are seeing him for their, you know, second, third, fourth at bats at most. And they don't have as much 
scouting on him. They don't know guys who faced him in the minors, right? It's a, it's a very different system. So I could see, I could see a situation where it's taking players longer to adjust to what his pitches do, which results in more called strikes. Um, I'd be curious to know if you went and looked at um, other players who have come from overseas, uh, other pitchers, do they see a boost in their called strike rate early on as people sort of adjust to how their breaking ball works and things like that? Yeah, I'm actually going to look up Hideo Nomo. I want to see what his looking strike rate was because he obviously had that crazy delivery. And, yeah. Uh, his looking strike rate was actually a tick below the major league average. So that doesn't help at all. For, for his career, for that, what about like just his first season? His first season was below average. And oh, actually, he was below average like most years, which nice. surprises me. Yeah, that, uh, that throws out my entire theory very quickly. <laughs> he got a ton of swinging strikes. So that's where all his strikeouts came from. And that's what we were hoping for from Ryu. But that he's completely the opposite of Hideo Nomo. So yeah. makes us a little even less optimistic here. And I, I'm also concerned about the innings. Uh, I looked back at his uh, innings in Korea, and last year he was at 182, the year before 126, and the year before that 192. And so it, it makes me a little cautious about expecting him to throw 200 innings. I mean, he's already at 105, so he's on pace for over 200 innings. But I just don't see him doing that. I, I would project 180 to 190 to be safe. And uh, so that's going to slow down his pace. And given that low swinging strike rate, I'm just not real excited about his second half. And I just don't know if anybody else is going to be real excited about him either. So I don't know if he's a great sell-high guy because I don't know what you could actually get. But I do expect some regression in that second half. Yeah, man, I'd be curious to know when you say you're not excited, how how unexcited are you? Because, I mean, as I said, you know, I think clearly there's going to be regression. It's it's unavoidable with, with how good his start has been. But I really don't see any reason to think he's going to cease to be a, a valuable fantasy asset. Yeah, uh, I kind of like the Zips ERA of 381, maybe between Steamer and Zips of 360 to 381. But both of them have higher strikeout rates than he's posting right now, above 8. I don't think it's going to happen. Unless he starts inducing more swings and misses, I don't think his strikeout rate is going to jump above 8. Uh, I think it'll be in the, the low 7 range. And... So that's going to obviously reduce his fantasy value as well. So mid to high three ERA range and uh, a mid-120s whip, I, I think, is, is going to be what Ryu is going to give you the rest of the way. And I, I would think you could probably find someone willing to buy on on something slightly better than that out of him. I mean, I, I think if, if I were looking to buy on him, um, if I'm projecting the rest of the way, I'm I'm slightly more optimistic than you. I actually think that um, he'll be a little bit better in the ERA. Uh, I think that his his WHIP is probably going to stay about where it is. I don't see any real major reason that that would change. Um, so you know, I'm thinking more like mid, you know, 1.24, 1.25 WHIP with a 3.5 to 3.6 ERA. Um, the big concern for me is as a fantasy player, I, I hate taking on pitchers who aren't getting good uh, strikeout rates. Um, to me, you know, anyone sort of below eight per nine is in a way detracting from your ability to win that category. And so that that's where I'd have real concerns about him. But 
you know, there's always room for guys like that. You don't have to have an entire roster of strikeout artists. And I would certainly be willing to buy uh, on him at slightly more value than what I think you think you're going to get from him. All right, let's move along to Seattle, where they are continuing to uh, transition into some more younger players, giving them another chance. And we have another prospect call-up to discuss, and that's Brad Miller taking over at shortstop to replace Brendan Ryan, who is a defensive wizard but can't hit a lick. And uh, obviously it's only been eight at-bats, but so far Brad Miller is hitless, which actually I'm excited about because I am desperate for a shortstop in my Tout Wars 15-team mixed league that includes on-base percentage. And so the fact that he's batting zero means that I'll be able to get him at a cheaper price. So I'm happy about that. But, I mean, is he a guy who's going to be worthy of mixed league 12-team mixed league attention? I think so, if only because shortstop is an unmitigated disaster this year. <laughs> I, I don't know anybody who doesn't need shortstop or middle infield help. Um, and I think that he, he should be able to put up some some decent numbers. He's not going to do anything great. Uh, you know, the the home park is, is, is going to be troublesome. Um, the lack of hitters around him in that lineup is going to be troublesome uh, in terms of like runs, RBIs, things like that. Um, but you know, I think he, he could over the course of, you know, let's say he gets a hundred games in, I think you could be looking at close to 10 stolen bases, close to 10 home runs, um, decent rate stats. You know, I I don't think he's going to come up and sort of set the world on fire. Um, you know, anyone who, who picked up Nick Franklin has been very happy with, with his production. I don't think Brad Miller is about to become, you know, the the next Nick Franklin, and you're suddenly going to have this middle infield that's just tearing up the world. Um, but I think in a, in a world where shortstop has just been so, so weak and such a problem area for so many teams, um, I do think that Miller's going to end the season on most people's, on rosters in almost every league. And it's funny you bring up Nick Franklin, obviously, and, and he's the guy who was called up uh, just before Brad Miller. And... It looks like these two are very similar, actually. They have some power, some speed, make pretty good contact, and they have very good walk rates. And both of them have very similar skill sets to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And, you know, living here in Seattle, um, I go to a lot of Mariners games, and um, I've been anxious all year for these two to get called up um, because I love watching guys like that. I think that, you know, they they put the ball in play pretty well. Um, They get on base. They they give you like I said you give you some pop um, and to me that's that's an you know an exciting skill set to to watch um, I, you know you worry a little bit about both of them defensively and can they stick at their positions but right now um, there's no reason for the Mariners not to keep them there and for fantasy purposes you know if they're terrible defensively you don't really care what you care about is that they maintain eligibility and there's no reason to think they won't do that at least for the next year or so yeah I mean personally I don't think Brad Miller is going to be worth all that much in a 12-team mixed league I still think yeah if you need a shortstop absolutely take a chance but I mean he's not going to give you that much more than replacement level production I think he'll be worth more in an OBP league just because he's had good walk rates all throughout his minor league career well above uh, 10% all between 11 and 13% so his on-base percentage should be pretty good especially for a shortstop where you got a lot of guys 
whose uh, walking ability isn't exactly there. And, and you got replacement level lower at shortstop and on base percentage than in other, cate- uh, in other positions like first base. So I think, yeah, I think that's true. And, and I do think there's some upside with um, particularly with the power. I mean, I think if you, you look back last year, he stole 23 bases across two levels. This year he's stolen Six. You know, eight bases if you eight. include his major league time. But he's, he doesn't seem to be stealing at quite the same pace in the minors as he was last year. Um, and I don't know if that's intentional. You know, it's hard to know if the coaches were telling him, hey, you got other things to work on. Don't worry about, you know, stealing. Um, but I don't expect him to be, you know, a 20 stolen base guy. Um, but, I, you know, there, there certainly is upside there. There's certainly upside in terms of power. Uh, and, and there's some potential there that a lot of the replacement level middle infielders just don't have. You know, he may not be a lot better than them, but he could be. And, you know, really thinking about this, I just realized, isn't this the same skill set as Dustin Ackley? I mean, what is it with Mariners infield prospects that they're all like the same? Uh, is is he any different than Dustin Ackley skill set wise? Hopefully the skills will translate better. <laughs> other than that, I'm not really sure. Because, I mean, Dustin Ackley was a similar guy, made pretty good contact, very good play patience, so a good walk rate, some power, and a bit of speed. I mean, this is the same guy between Nick Franklin, Brad Miller, and Dustin Ackley. They have three of the exact same player. Yeah, I mean, the, the difference would be what the actual sort of pedigree was, what the expectations were. I mean, there are three guys with very similar skill sets, but Ackley was expected to produce it at an all-star level, Franklin at sort of an everyday player level, Miller maybe not quite even to that level, although he's you know, as he keeps producing at higher levels there, his stock has definitely been rising. Um, but if you look at sort of where they were when they were in a ball, double a sort of coming up through the ranks, you, you had very different projections for all three of them. Um, despite the fact that, like you said, the, the way that they were going to go about reaching those projections looks very similar. All right, let's move along to uh, some batted ball distance talk. And uh, earlier in the year, you and I had collaborated on a whole series of correlating the average home run plus fly ball distance on baseballheatmaps.com, which is Jeff Zimmerman's site. And uh, we found uh, a strong correlation between that distance and a hitter's home run per fly ball rate. You also took that further. You looked at the changes from one year to the next, and we we found out a lot of great information. So why don't you start out by giving us the name of one surprise hitter that is near the top of the batted ball distance leaderboards at the moment. So I was really surprised to see Ryan Zimmerman up there. Um, obviously a you know a fantastic hitter, um, but not a guy you usually think of as sort of a, a power hitter. I mean, you know, he's going to put up, he did have his 33 home run season in 2009, but really he's a guy that you think, you know, 20 to 25 home runs and solid rates and, you know, good numbers across the board. And he is sitting in a, in 11th, I believe, in terms of home run and fly ball distance this year. So is that um, over 300 feet? Yeah, 305. Wow, that's pretty darn good. Yeah, and, I, you know, it's I, you look back last year, he was around 293, I believe. Um, so that's a pretty big increase. And I don't think we've really seen anything from him that says that, you know, this is going to be just a huge power year from him. And you look, he's got nine home runs so far. Um, Zips and Steamer the rest of the season are looking for about 10 or 11 more out of him. But if that distance keeps up, he's going to hit more than another 10 or 11 home runs this year. He's going to hit more like 15 to 20 more home runs. Yeah, and, and he's a guy who always seems to be battling some nagging injuries. You know, he has shoulder problems. He has 
Uh, wasn't he battling something this year as well? I can't recall what the injury was. Maybe it was his uh, hamstring or a leg or something. You know, I, I thought it was his shoulder was bothering him again earlier this year. I know that, that arm's been sort of a consistent issue for him. Uh, well, yeah. If that is indeed the case, then that's obviously a great sign that his batted ball distance is over 300 feet. Um, and his home run per fly ball rate right now is basically the same as it's always been. So I think that gives uh, Zimmerman owners confidence that the shoulder is not bothering him. And uh, maybe he's actually got some hidden home run per fly ball upside. Maybe he can get back to uh, that 33 home run pace back in 2009. But he actually posted a home run per fly ball rate last year that was exactly the same as 2009. Right. It was just a matter of more fly balls. And that's been his problem is that he hasn't really hit as many fly balls as you'd want from a 30-plus home run potential guy. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think that, you know, looking at him this year and looking at that distance, I think what you said is right. It gives me confidence that he's not hurt, that he's he, he's healthy, that what he's doing right now is sustainable, that he's going to be able to keep putting up the numbers you expect from him. Um, but, yeah, I definitely think there there is some upside there. And like you said, for him, it's just a matter of, you know, a little more loft, <laughs> get, get under the ball a little bit more. And if he does that um, – I think you could easily see him certainly pass the 25 home runs that he put up in 2010 and 2012. Uh, I don't know if he'll get quite to the 33 from 2009, but the, the potential is there. He's clearly got the power to do it uh, if he if he wants to. <laughs> yeah, and actually, uh, I don't know the other name that you're going to throw out at me, but I just made a trade in Tout Wars for Aramis Ramirez. And, I mean, he's a guy who we know is playing on a bulky knee, He's not 100%, at least he says so, and his ISO is down. So I did some serious research into him to determine if it was really worth trading for him, but his batted ball distance is perfectly fine. He's at 289 feet or so, and he's always been around that level. So that gave me the confidence that although he says that his knees is hurting him and his ISO is down, he's hitting the ball just as far as he always has been. So that makes me think that the home runs will come around and he will be fine. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Aramis is definitely a guy who for years you've been able to just sort of pencil him in for the for the big numbers, the big power numbers. Um, and I think he probably is a good a good buy low candidate right now. I think that, like you said, the, the distance is fine. And as long as that stays up, I mean, the only other sort of concerning stat with him this year is the strikeout rate is up. Yeah, he's definitely striking out more often. But his contact rate and his swinging strike rate are basically the same as they've always been as well. So I think that'll come around. Makes sense. Uh, all right. I also asked you for a second name that surprised you atop the leaderboard. Yes, the other guy that I was surprised to see just a couple spots below Zimmerman is Ricky Weeks. Uh, you know, Weeks has been... I was having such a bad year at one point that the the Brewers decided he needed to be in a platoon. Um, that is that was ridiculous, over. by the way. Yeah, it, it was ridiculous, and it was a it was a killer for fantasy owners. I mean, I, I was in a league where someone wanted to trade him to me, and we couldn't come to terms on it because he wanted to trade Ricky Weeks, and I was acquiring a part time player, and it just it didn't really make sense for either of us at the time. It was a league with shallow benches, and it's just what do you do with a guy who's a platoon player like that? Um, but you know, he's now obviously bouncing back, 
But I would have expected to see, you know, decent decent uh, distance from him over the last, you know, couple weeks. But over the season, I was surprised that he was so high up there. Yeah, and his home run per fly ball rate actually is normal, but he's suffering the same thing that Ryan Zimmerman suffers from. His fly ball rate this year is actually at a career low. So he's simply not lofting the ball, but instead of fly balls, he's hitting line drives. And that actually might not be such a bad thing for Ricky Weeks because throughout his career, he's hit line drives at a below league average level. So basically what his batted ball profile is telling me is he's the ultimate by low. I mean, Scooter Jeanette was demoted. So he doesn't have to worry about that stupid platoon anymore. And his overall season line is still not very impressive. So I think he's a great buy low. I actually did buy him uh, a couple of days before he went into that platoon in that same Tower Wars League. So now I'm going to have two Brewers who I'm hoping are going to turn things around. And and that batted ball distance tells me that maybe he's got upside to once again threaten that 25 to 30 home run level. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, he's certainly showing the power to do it. Uh, like you said, he's got to get the fly ball rate back up. Um, but, you know, if he keeps up the distance, the fly ball rate can stay low. He can hit more line drives and he'll still produce the power you need him to produce to, to have the value you expect from him. He doesn't need a ton of power to be a, a star at second base. Yeah, and now if he's hitting leadoff, that will obviously increase his run scored, give him more counting stats because he'll have – more plate appearances. So uh, I think Ricky Weeks is still a nice by low opportunity, even though he has been relatively hot the last couple of weeks. Uh, all right. How about some surprise guys toward the bottom of the list? And this is scary if uh, fantasy owners have these players on their team because you don't want somebody at the bottom of the batted ball distance leaderboard. Yeah. So in general, I, I wasn't super surprised by most of the names at the bottom. And I think that's because even the guys who you would be sort of surprised to see down there in general or having down years. Um, the, the name that sort of surprised me with just how low he was was Paul Konerko. Oof. Um, he ranks number 258 out of 283 guys. His, wow. his batted ball distance is down to 257.5. Wow. that's And, you know, I'm a huge Paul Konerko fan, but that suggests to me that this is, this is no early season slump. He's just – Old age has come quickly, and, and that's it. He's done. I, and I think that's true. I've been I, – I picked him up in the original Auto New League, I don't know, four or five years ago, right before he had this sort of late – you know, this late career run where, you you know, he started hitting – he had 39 home runs in 2010. I definitely had him that year. I had him the next couple of years after that. And every year I ask myself, should I get rid of him? Should I not? No one ever hits him in arbitration. I'm always able to keep him. Um, I think he's only cost me like $9 or something this year. And so I was again in this position where like, you can't really cut him at $9, but right now I haven't been playing him either because I just, I don't think that there's anything left. Yeah. To me, I mean, we've talked about Canerco, uh, me and Eno in previous episodes, and I think we basically concluded that he's not a buy low and nothing has really changed since then. I mean, he's not gotten hot. He's still, you know, I actually think he's injured. He's been injured. He, he's been out of lineup the last couple of days. But yeah. he's definitely not a buy low. I mean, even in an AL only, he's not a buy low. In a 12-team mixed league, I would imagine that his owner is getting frustrated at this point and wondering whether he should outright drop him. I don't know if I would drop him, but he seems like he's pretty close to replacement level right now that you kind of want to get like a Brandon Moss or something who I know has been added and dropped in my own 12-team mixed league. 
So, I mean, the, the White Sox lineup isn't very good. They have uh, no real ability to actually get on base. They don't walk very often. So the RBIs just haven't been there. I mean, he's been hitting in the middle of the lineup all year. He only has 30 RBIs. So yeah. he's not a buy low in my eyes. And that's very yeah. sad coming from a big Canerco fan. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, he, he's been getting a little bit better. I mean, obviously, as I said, owning him in in a league where I've had him for years and I've been able to sort of pencil him in at first base and not have to worry about it. Um, I've been watching him pretty closely and his June and the last couple weeks before he just got hurt have been pretty good. Um, certainly not good enough that you could play him as a first baseman. Um, but he, he's got the on base percentage in June up to about up to 350, which is a, a pretty big boost when you consider he was at 290 in April and 323 in May. Um, the slugging percentage is still a bit low. It's, you know, it's barely over 400. Um, but, you know, he's got, like I said, he's gotten a couple days off. Maybe there's some things to look for in the next, you know, two to three weeks to see, does that home run distance start to bounce back? Does he, you know, show some signs? I think there's still time for him to salvage his season, but right now I'm not, I'm not buying. Um, if I thought I could sell him for any value, I would. Um, and I, you know, I'm not sure in an auto new league with, with 40 roster spots where I own him, I'm not in any hurry to drop him. Cause I don't, I just don't need the roster spot, but he isn't really adding a lot of value right now. No, he's definitely not. And I, I have a feeling that nobody else is really looking to buy low on him. So selling low on him probably wouldn't be worthwhile either. It's probably just, you know, hold on and cross your fingers and hope something good happens. But be aware that something good is probably not going to happen, which is not something to be very optimistic about. Yeah, agreed. All right, uh, and how about another one that you're surprised about on the bottom of the leaderboard? So I'm going to throw out a name that I'm not surprised about, but when I talk to people, I think they're surprised about, and that's Jerks and Profar. I, I think there was an expectation that he was going to come up and be this, like, you know, all-world player and, and you know, hit 30 home runs and steal 30 bases. And, you know, you, you get this sort of top prospect in baseball talk going and people get over overly excited. Um, and I just think it's worth noting that, you know, Profar's still young. He, he isn't a guy who's had huge power numbers. He's not a guy that you're looking at and thinking, oh, this guy's going to hit 30 home runs this year. Um, but I think there were a lot of people who thought he was going to be this magic bullet solution to their problems in middle infield. Um, and obviously, the, you know, the playing time is an issue. But I think more than that, you know, you have to recognize that, yes, he, he is a, a an incredible, incredible talent. Um, that doesn't mean he's going to be Hanley Ramirez in his prime. Yeah, what, do you have his exact batted ball distance in front of you? Uh, yeah, it is, let me pull it up right here. It's 254.9. Yeah, that's bad. And yeah. I know like Juan Pierre territory is probably 230, 240, so it's probably a little bit of that. But, but yeah, he, he's right in line with like Alberto Cayaspo, Pete Cosma, Eric Ibar, your, your standard weak hitting middle infielders. Yeah, and just for some context for the listeners who aren't real familiar with what's a good batted ball distance, the league average is generally 275 to 280 feet. Anything above 300 is elite. And is reserved for Giancarlo Stanton, Matt Kemp, uh, Ryan Howard when he was in his prime, and and so 250 is is bad. 
uh, that's usually going to be like a 5% home run per fly ball rate. And so it's not something that you want to see from a, a Jerkson profile, you know, a, a top prospect who has a 9% home run per fly ball right now. And that distance suggests that that's not going to be sustained, that it, that's going to come down. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, I want to be clear, Profar is going to be a star in this league, I think. And it's just a matter of time. He, he's still only, what, 20 years old? Yeah, he's 20. So you, you can't really expect much from him. And that that's more my point here is that, you know, that, that 250 is not going to be the level he's at for his career, for sure. It probably won't even be the level he's at for next season. Um, but it's going to take him a little while to, to work up and become sort of the star player people think he can become. Um, but I think that I, I still think I talk to people who in trade talks and stuff like that are saying, Oh, I can't move pro far. He's going to hit me 15 home runs and steal me 10 bases the rest of the way. <laughs> That's just not going to happen. Yeah. I, I think that people, there are some people who just get swept up in the prospect hype and they just can't help themselves, but it's silly to have expected pro far to come up and take the league by storm given his age, given the fact that his minor league stats were solid, but they weren't like amazing. I mean, what they suggested is he's going to be a good all-around contributor, but come on. He had four home runs at AAA this year and 144 at-bats. Previously, 14 home runs, 12 home runs. I mean, this is not like a guy who's going to hit you 25, 30 home runs immediately. I mean, eventually he might at his peak, but he's a 20-year-old middle infielder who should be good all-around. And, and you know, like a Brad Miller. I mean, <laughs> do you really expect him to outperform a Brad Miller if he had the playing time? I don't, I don't know. I, I think that they would be very similar. But if you ask anybody, they'd probably laugh at you comparing Jerickson Profar to a Brad Miller or a Nick Franklin. But the the uh, the realistic scenario is that they're going to be similar players. Right. Yeah, but I think this year in a for, – for a non-keeper league, I would take Franklin over Profar. Exactly. And that's the reality. And yet I'm sure you'd probably get laughed at by lots of fantasy owners. I think that's true. All right. Let's talk about another prospect who's pitching quite well at the moment. It's Jacob Turner, former Tigers prospect acquired by the Marlins before last year's trade deadline. And right now he has a sub-2 ERA. That, that'll that continue, right? I mean, he's going to post a sub-ERA all season long, right? Of course. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't throw a sub-2 ERA with a sub-6K per nine? I mean... Right, of course. Stretching people out doesn't matter. He's in Miami, which is a great pitcher's park, and uh, I think he's very capable of it. No, but for real, I mean, is he a guy who mixed league owners and in, in 12-team mixed leagues should keep on their team all season long? I mean, I would be trying to trade him if I owned him anywhere. I think he, he's not striking anybody out. You can get away with low strikeout rates if you don't walk anyone either. But his walk rate, I mean, 2.63 in a, in a walk per nine is – fine, but it's certainly not, you know, you don't want a, a two to one strikeout to walk ratio. That's not going to fly. Um, he's got a really low bat. If he's got a really low home run per nine, I mean, people just are not getting the ball out of the park on him and that's not going to continue. Uh, I mean, you look at even his triple a numbers, um, last, you know, this year in, you know, only 56 innings, but he had a 1.12 home run per nine in triple a, so he's not going to keep that up. Guys are getting left on base at a ridiculously high rate. There, there are just a ton, a ton of warning signs here. Um, it, you know, 
I, I would peg him at closer to a four to four point two zero ERA the rest of the way. Um, and with a guy, if you're going to get that kind of ERA in fantasy, you better be getting a ton of strikeouts with it. Um, I, I, I'd be I'd be selling Jacob Turner as, as quickly as I could if I had ever bought him. You know what the surprising thing is, is that his swinging strike rate is actually well above the league average. And that obviously doesn't normally correlate to a 5.9 strikeout rate. But checking out baseball reference, he's actually getting no looking strikes or foul strikes, which is a weird combination. It's kind of Hiroki Kuroda-esque or Jaime Garcia, who I've noticed are uh, other outliers of the whole swinging strikes correlating with strikeout rate. And so that actually gives me hope that maybe those looking strikes will eventually come and he'll be able to bump up that strikeout rate. But he's never shown a good strikeout rate, even in the minors. And yeah, I think it's more likely that that high swing strike rate is going to come down. That we're still, you know, it's 40 innings is is not a tiny sample size for swinging strike rate, but it's not huge yet. Um, and I think it's more likely that that swinging strike rate is an outlier than that he's suddenly going to start striking guys out at even a league average rate. Because like you said, even in the minors, he never really did that. Yeah, and right now, you know who he reminds me of? Paul Mahalam or or a Tim Hudson. I mean, these aren't guys you're really rushing out or excited to own in your league. Paul Mahalam's actually on free agency in one of my leagues. And, I mean, if you really think of his upside as Paul Mahalam, that's not somebody to really get too excited about. Now, I do kind of like him in AL only uh, – sorry, in NL only leagues. He does play in a good ballpark. Uh, the, the control is pretty good. He has that very good ground ball rate. So, I mean, he's – probably not going to blow up on you he'll be decent and that swinging strike rate even though it probably will decline it does give some hope of a strikeout rate uh surge so and only yeah he, he's a, a decent guy with some upside but i don't think he's any more than a matchup play in in shallower mixed leagues yeah i mean i think that's true i think my, my concern with him if you know, it depends a little bit on what stats you're using in your league, but if you're if you're looking at sort of a traditional five by five, you know, your best case is that he posts a good ERA and a a decent WHIP. Um, he's he's not going to help you in strikeouts. He's not going to help you in wins, and so it, it becomes very difficult to to use him regularly in those kind of formats. Now, if you're looking at a different format where you're not counting wins or something like that. You know, he starts to get a little bit more valuable because he he can provide better stats elsewhere. Um, but that low strikeout rate just it scares me, and it's it's really hard to make up in in fantasy leagues. All right, let's move along to some Adenu strategy. Now, you are our resident Adenu guru, and is it true that you actually helped Niv put together the game when it was first developed? Yeah, I mean, years ago, I think we're in year seven or eight now when we first put it together um it was niv and i and another friend of ours from from high school who uh we wanted to play in a fantasy league that did some things a little bit different from the traditional league and nobody had something for us so we built it ourselves and started to realize more and more people wanted to do it which was what eventually led us to partner with with fangraphs uh two years ago three years ago i can't remember how long now so I know that you write columns every so often, Adenu Hot right now, where you highlight some of the players that Adenu leaguers are picking up. 
Where do you get that data from? Is that I know that there's like a, a ticker that scrolls at the top of leagues. Is that the hot right now players that you get? Or no, so I can I have access to some of the back end data, oh, um, oh, which includes special. a list of uh, ongoing auctions. So I can pull up at any time, and I can do it right now and tell you tell you who's who's popular right now. So right now, the player with the single most auctions ongoing is a guy we talked about a little bit earlier, Brad Miller. Oh, Not surprising. Nope. That's very interesting, though, that you have that data. I mean, it's it's a really it's an interesting and it's an easy column idea for you because. And that's actually, it's very similar to what I do here with the most interesting player alive today. Just look for whoever is the most searched for player on Fangraphs, and that's an easy topic discussion. And the same thing for for Adenu, hot right now. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's it's a really good way to get a sense of um, what who people are looking at. And I, you know, part of it is if it's if I take two or three guys who are in a ton of auctions. There's a good chance that one of those guys is up for auction in at least one league that any auto new player is in. Um, and so hopefully I'm writing something that's that's really relevant to people. Yeah, and that's obviously the most important thing. Now, this is the first year I'm actually playing in a Fangraphs staff Adenu league. And I just want to gloat first for one second. And tell me if you've ever heard this before. So it's only a 10-team league. Mm-hmm. But check this out. Out of 100 total points... I have 87 and a half, and second place is at 64, and uh, I just made a trade as well, and it was actually a dump trade where I uh, I got the good players, so I traded Howie Kendrick at $1, Andrew Kashner at $3, and Leonis Martin at $1 for Mike Trout and Cole Hamels. So, and and this was with David Weirs, and I told him that my goal is to get 100 out of 100 points. So, <laughs> uh, I'm hoping this is going to get me there or help me get there so as well. In the original league right now, um, I mentioned that Niv and I had a, a third friend who founded the league with us, a guy named Jeff. Uh, Jeff has never won the league. This year, um, and we're in a 4 by 4 league, so the maximum number of points is 96. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has 94 Oh my gosh. He is in first place in every category except on base percentage. He is in third place in on base percentage. Um, I would say it's highly unlikely that he's going to move all the way up to first and on base, but he could definitely move up to second. Um, I, I, a couple years, in years two and three of the league, I put together great teams, and I think I cracked 91 of those years. Um, 94 is just insane. It, it is, and and here I was thinking that eighty seven and a half out of a hundred was good, and you tell me it's ninety four out of ninety six. But the the thing I'm worried about is that one of my strategies was to play for this year and screw prospects. I don't need minor leaguers on my team. Every year there are going to be minor leaguers that are available, so I think I might be the only team out of the ten that has not one prospect or minor leaguer. And I have no idea if this is going to come back to bite me, how the offseason works with keepers. So what do you make of the strategy of playing for this year versus playing for next and future years and drafting prospects? So, you know, just like in real baseball, um, it's part of what we liked about the way Autonew was designed. You know, if you play for this year, it's going to be a trade-off next year. If you play for the future, you're going to have to take trade-offs on this year. Um, I think in year one of a league, 
going for broke is actually a pretty good strategy because I think a lot of people, they see every prospect out there. They get really excited. The prospects tend to be overpriced in the first year of leagues and people buy too many of them. And I do think there's a huge opportunity for someone to just sort of step in and say, you know, screw it, forget the prospects. I'm just going to win this year. Um, Is it going to come back to bite you? Probably. Um, Yeah, there will be prospects available for you next year. But if you look at the the types of prospects who are going to impact the game heavily next season are guys who are close now, right? I mean, you're looking at guys like Profar, like an Osvaldo Arcia, um, players like that who are either producing now or close to producing now, and those guys will all be kept. They won't be available to you next year. Um, so you're going to end up in a position where you have sort of two choices. One is you can sort of punt next season and go to the opposite extreme, um, or you can go with more of a, you know, what, I, what I've seen a number of teams do is you go with a, a stars and scrubs approach in year two and make decision, you know, in, in May or June, if you realize, wow, I'm just not competing because I don't have any of these young, cheap players producing at a high level, um, start trading and preparing for 2015. And <laughs> never, you know, if you, never, never. <laughs> At some point, it has to happen. It's I, I haven't seen anyone consider. I mean, you know, we've only had one league that's been going for more than I think three years, and so it's you know obviously you know small sample size uh, applies here, but we haven't had anyone who's been able to consistently compete without taking a moment to rebuild here or there. Um, I'm probably the closest to that. I finished in the money. I think every year except for two. Um, but even then, the year I didn't, the the two years I didn't finish in the money, I sold very aggressively. I had a couple of off seasons where I sold very aggressively and then rebuilt in the auction. Um, but the way you win in auto new, especially as you get into years two and three and beyond, is you get two or three guys who are producing at an elite level for very little money, which means that you can also go out and buy a Ryan Braun or um, a Miguel Cabrera or someone like that and, and not have to you know, take a huge hit somewhere else. Yeah, well, speaking of which, I just want to confirm the price I have him at. And this was, I mean, I'm not going to take credit for this because this is obviously very lucky, but I drafted Chris Davis for two bucks. So... That'll be enough. That helps. <laughs> yeah. That, that, now, you, now you know a little bit of why I'm in first. I mean, I have to imagine that the percentage of fantasy owners that own Chris Davis that are also in first place is pretty, pretty high this year. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, in his average price in auto new leagues is about $6. Um, so even in, you know, even in the cases where you didn't get him for two bucks, um, <laughs> You weren't paying a whole lot for him. Yeah. So he, he's definitely and – that, and that's the thing is that when you go into next season, um, you know, the, the players I start to look at is, you know, who's going to likely win leagues next year? Who do I think are going to be those guys? It, it is the guys like a Profar, um, assuming he comes back okay, and Oscar Tavares, players like that who can put up really good numbers at really low prices and allow the owner the flexibility to spend a ton on – other, you know, the, the rest of the roster around them. 
Same thing in Major League Baseball, right? I mean, the teams that do the best are the teams that have a couple of, you know, Major League minimum level guys really producing because it allows them to build a great team around them. Yeah, you know, same strategy in a traditional keeper league that if you have a really good keeper list, it allows you to splurge on elite players at the auction that weren't kept. And then suddenly you have really good keepers plus really good players, meaning that's how you win. Absolutely. All right, well, that's going to do it for us today. So join us again on Tuesday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For Chad Young, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in.